Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. A big week for Xi Jinping as the Chinese premier is elevated to the status of Communist China's founder, Mao Zedong, as Beijing and Washington strike a climate deal as world leaders negotiate a final COP26 agreement in Glasgow. Russian troops are mashing on the Ukrainian border as Belarus's leader warns Europe that additional sanctions will prompt him to cut off gas supplies. And in Washington, Congress is out of session as Democrats continue to shape their Build Back Better social package as a leaked memo reminds the Capitol about the unusual nature of the Trump administration's personnel decision making. Joining us to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Dr. Evelyn Farkas, uh, who served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Eurasia, and Ukraine during the Obama administration, and who uh, ran for Congress, sadly unsuccessfully, to fill Nita Lowy's seat in upstate New York. We are very happy to have with us today Peter Van Prague, the president of the Halifax International Security Forum that will convene in person next week. Uh, Peter, a very special welcome uh, for uh, uh, joining us today, given how busy you are. And former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall and general Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And please check out our new downlink podcast with our very own contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a deep dive, uh, deep and thoughtful dive into all things space each week. And our Cavus Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, uh, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who talk uh, all things uh, Navy. Uh, welcome, everybody. Thanks very, very much for joining us. Patrick, I'm going to start with you because Congress is out of session and I'm not necessarily sure how much more uh, we can add to that in uh, the absence of our very own Michael Herson, who's not here this week. Uh, big week for uh, uh, Xi uh, Jinping, obviously a nail biter. Uh, he now has an indefinite uh, term. Uh, but we also have, you know, which wasn't a surprise. On the other hand, it was a surprise that we actually had a climate deal between Washington and Beijing. Walk, walk us through um, all things happening on Asia. And I should note for our audience that uh, you and Tom Mankin joined us earlier in the week for a little bit of a deeper dive uh, on China's uh, strategy. But but what did you take away from all of these events this week? Well, the main takeaway is that Xi has consolidated his domestic power um, perfectly for both his domestic agenda and his foreign agenda. Um, you know, he's not yet master of the universe, but he certainly mastered the CCP. Uh, the week began for him with a fawning, lengthy profile in the Xinhua News Service uh, and ended with this historical re resolution, which is only the third time that the party's passed the historical resolution. And it called Xi a, a living historical figure, you know, the founder of Xi Thought, a new school of thought that makes him the only person possible to lead China into the future. And as you pointed out, uh, Vago, on, on a par with, with Mao Zedong, you know, so this is nine years of work uh, culminating for him. It was, a, it was in 2012 at the uh, 18th Party Congress where Xi Jinping made a turning point in the party. He called for a focus on party discipline, on uh, ideological conformity, on anti-corruption. And this has all come to roost now as he is set to become uh, not just an indefinite leader, but he's on his way to a third five-year stint as party chairman at next year's 20th Party Congress. 
So there's a level of centralization and valorization that means any criticism of Xi Jinping is tantamount to a, an attack on the party state. Now, this matters uh, for, for two reasons. One is that it strengthens his hand um, at, at, uh, at home when he has these very ambitious agenda and, and when the economy may drop to 2% growth next year, some are predicting. But it also uh, allows him uh, a strong hand in competing with, with the United States. And so I, let me just talk about the competition to define our bilateral relationship is at the heart of his political agenda in foreign policy. He's long ago abandoned the idea that he could get the United States to accept some kind of new type of great power relationship moniker. He's instead fighting to make sure that the relationship is cast in his kind of aspirational terms of the future, not in terms of just the lens of competition and strategic competition. So he's preparing for next Monday's virtual summit. This is gonna be the first summit, although it's virtual, uh, as President Biden uh, and Xi Jinping will be meeting. Um, and, and here he has been showing some signs of softening. He's got some tactical softening in his position. That doesn't mean that China's not still fighting back on all the old usual issues, still attacking our alliances as they did this week. In fact, he did in a, in a uh, videotape to the APEC conference. He talked to CEOs at APEC and he essentially warned them that uh, they're going to hurt their bottom line if they head toward confrontation. They really need to take advantage of cooperation. Um, you know, the government's been attacking our human rights focus, the United States human rights focus, uh, the technological barriers that are still very much in place in the Biden administration, carrying on from the last administration, um, and um, mostly attacking our one China policy. That is, right. they, see, they see our approach to Taiwan as a salami slicing, weakening our commitment to the one China policy that acknowledged Beijing, um, or at least one, one China that uh, normalized relations back in 79. Um, and so take the um, CODEL that just landed in Taiwan um, on, a, on a C40, um, led by Senator John Cornyn, three other Republican senators, a couple of Republican representatives. Uh, this is seen as a provocation by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, they attacked Secretary Blinken in a New York Times interview, he talked about uh, the Taiwan Relations Act leading to significant commitments, even while we hewed to a one China part uh, policy, the Chinese right. attacked him for saying, no, the Taiwan Relations Act is, is illegal. You can't, so they're trying to redefine this relationship. Nonetheless, softening, and this is the key point. So last, last week, we talked a lot about the China military report out of DOD. That's so last week, right? Now, <laughs> this week, the message from China is uh, a message that he, uh, Xi Jinping delivered in letter form to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, touting the importance of cooperation. And finally, your point about the U.S.-China Joint Declaration on Enhancing Climate Actions in 2020. That's the long name of that joint declaration um, that the United States and China just announced at the end of COP26. And, you know, the agreement does not have lots of firm commitments. In fact, it, it doesn't commit to specifics. But it does at least uh, sign China now up for the Global Methane Pledge, which is kind of the low-hanging fruit for climate change reduction because it, it helps uh, get countries to cut methane emissions by 30% by the end of the decade. So China's going to put together a plan by next year about how they're going to do that. They haven't done it yet. Uh, they've also talked now in, at the end in this joint declaration about uh, phasing down coal consumption. Of course, they're the biggest coal consumers um, more than 50% of the global coal consumption out of China. 
And they're really just talking about doing this during the latter half of this decade. So they've kind of front loaded this joint declaration at COP26. We'll see what kind of national action plan they put forward next year in Egypt at COP27. All of this is a setup to, again, this virtual summit. I don't expect this to be a sunny lands kind of optimistic summit, but it does at least uh, offer some throttling back of the severe intensified uh, competition toward a, a sort of a more stable relationship for the coming months during the Olympics and during next year's party Congress. This is also a little bit of uh, a reaction, uh, certainly to all the pressure that the administration has been putting on China, right? I mean, the administration has been pretty successful bringing everybody together against China. I mean, is this finally a manifestation of that? Because we've discussed this over many months about whether or not this was having an impact. And until this week, it didn't appear to be having much of an impact. I think this is bearing some fruit. The administration has coalesced uh, an international group, um, often attacked from Beijing as uh, sort of uh, uh, cliques of small groups, many lateralism, uh, ganging up on them. But the reality is, no, China's feeling the onus of having alienated its neighbors and so many in, in Europe and internationally through their actions and behavior. But Interestingly, I mean, if you look at Jake Sullivan's comments last week on, on the TV shows, as well as a speech to the Lowy Institute, he did not mention Taiwan, did not mention um, Xinjiang or Hong Kong. So, you know, the, both the Biden administration and Xi Jinping's government are kind of um, treading lightly as they head into a summit meeting where they want both leaders to come out with some kind of a, a right. stable relationship. And China will under, un, undoubtedly want to cast it with their own understanding. So it'll watch for next week how they do that. And people like Kurt Campbell will be speaking not today, but next week now to try to reframe probably how the Biden administration sees the Indo-Pacific after the summit with Xi Jinping. Uh, and, and of course, right, I mean, one of the concerns is uh, that the U.S. is, uh, right, appeasing China, toning its language down, not talking about Taiwan. Um, you know, and the concern always was that there would be some linkage of the climate deal uh, and a weakening, uh, you know, a potentially problematic uh, weak weakening uh, of a, a tougher U.S. line at the very time that we're getting the rest of the world to sort of come along with us. In as much as it's China, 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 uh, the, you know, folks in Europe always want to remind you that it's also Russia, Russia, Russia. And we have uh, very large Russian troop concentrations that are on the Ukraine border, important enough for the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, uh, to raise that uh, issue. And we also have Lukashenko uh, threatening uh, Europe, you know, hey, unless you want a very, very cold winter, uh, you're going to ease sanctions on me. That's prompted European governments to buckle, uh, Germany being notably uh, in, in, in the past. Uh, Putin has certainly said stuff like this. Evelyn, how do we need to think about where we are and what can the international community do? Because as much as everybody has pledges to Ukraine, it's it's a little bit like Taiwan, right? It's not in the midst of security agreements. It's not a NATO partner. What? How do we need to think and what does the administration in the international community need to be doing about where we are, right? Is this just saber rattling or something actually deeper? Um, I, I'm afraid it's actually something deeper. I mean, let me just step back for one second and um, make a kind of macro point. So as much as we are worried about China, and China is indeed a threat to US interests um, globally, um, Russia is the immediate um, high risk, um, high miscalculation threat. Um, and Russia and China are 
increasingly over time, they've been increasingly cooperating with one another. So this idea, and it drives me insane um, that people raise from time to time in Washington that it's, you know, Russia or China. No, it's both of them. Okay. So let's just get that off the table because I'm going to get irritated if somebody raises the question again. This is a safe space for your irritation. Okay. You're, you're not going to make the case that Russia is not a big uh, problem. You know, I'm That's a Soviet cool. studies major uh, yeah. and my dad, you know, when I graduated soon after the Soviet Union collapsed and my dad was like, it's a great degree. They're never really going to change. So you'll, you'll have some job security was the way that he looked at it. But you were saying, well, so so the issue now is that um, we've gotten the Europeans concerned enough about China, so that's good. They're working with us constructively. On the Russia case file, um, they're actually now more concerned than we are, in a sense, or at least publicly. But you, but as you rightfully pointed out, Secretary Blinken, is, you know, is saying blink, blink. Speaking of blinking, you know, code red lights are blinking. It's not just the fact that the Russians have increased their military. Um, presence on the border with Ukraine and also the composition of those forces because numbers is numbers is not the only thing it's what capabilities special forces also units from farther away there are real signs that the Russians are making another play for more Ukrainian territory but at the same time this this gambit by the Belarusian president to put political pressure on the EU and on NATO allies is I don't think completely unconnected to what's happening with Ukraine because the Russians could use the pretense of tension on the Belarusian-Polish border, engineered, of course, by Lukashenko because he basically weaponized refugees, brought them over on planes to Belarus and leashed, unleashed them at the Polish border. Right. That threat, that chaos could be utilized by the Russians to not only take territory in more territory in Ukraine, but also to take some territory on the Polish-Lithuanian border because by a weird quirk of uh, history, the Russians contain a sliver of territory, Kaliningrad, um, which is essentially blocked from Belarus by our two NATO allies, Poland and Lithuania, territorially speaking. And if the Russians make such a play, then they are actually really tempting NATO or, or taunting NATO rather, because that's an Article 5 issue, which as everyone knows means under NATO, uh, a treaty, Washington Treaty, we all have to come to the defense of Lithuania and Poland if their territory is violated by the Russians conventionally. Having said that, I, you notice I use the word conventionally because right now there is an irregular violation by Belarus of Polish of the Polish border, as I mentioned, with this migration um, that that the Belarusian government is forcing on Poland and the EU and NATO countries. Um, I want to step back for one minute because you mentioned the energy um, pressure that has more to do. It, it that is the political pressure that is the environment within which I think the Russians and the Belarusians are trying to convince the West not to block them militarily and also not to po impose new sanctions on them. But I think I'm gonna hazard a guess and say they're less worried about the sanctions and they're more, and they're more interested in getting their way militarily. Um, Peter, let me uh, bring you into the conversation. Thanks very much again uh, for uh, joining us. Um, one of the great things that the forum uh, does is balance the present with what we need to think about over the coming year. It was a couple of years ago when we convened in person um, where uh, the forum became focused on crafting an integrated uh, global approach uh, to China and its uh, human rights uh, violations, for example, right? I mean, how to deal with this new challenge. Climate's been one of those things, global inequality and certainly authoritarianism, right? 
right? I mean, we're seeing a manifestation of this about whether, you know, what's going on right now in China. We have an authoritarian leader in Russia. We have an authoritarian in Belarus. We're worried about authoritarianism in Europe. And certainly, you know, in Brazil, this is playing out where um, Donald Trump's uh, supporters uh, and the president himself and his closest aides are supporting Jair Bolsonaro to sort of, you know, uh, try to unhinge Brazilian democracy. What are going to be, you know, how do you see these uh, developments and how are they going to be reflected in the forum's agenda uh, when we convene in sunny Nova Scotia in a week's time? Uh, Vago, it's great to be here. Thank you for including me. I can't promise that it's going to be sunny in uh, in uh, Halifax, but we'll do what we can. Um, I, uh, you know, Halifax International Security Forum. We're now meeting. It's been more than a decade, and uh, you know what we do is we bring the democracies together, um, and so it's really an environment uh, that is friendly and constructive. Uh, and we do. We look back and uh, see what we've done right, what we've done wrong. Uh, and we try to project into the, uh, into the year ahead. I think that this year, it's the 20th anniversary since 9-11, allows us to look back, not just uh, into the time of the pandemic, but to look back uh, all the way to 9-11 uh, as a starting point and, and really talk to ourselves about the mistakes that we've been made that, that that we've made and so our our opening panel this year is is called after the fall and um we can we can define that really as you know decisions made after 9-11 we can talk about the 2008 financial crisis we can talk about the rise of the successful rise of populist politics in some of our democracies including this including the united states and we can talk as we will uh, talk about Afghanistan and the withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan. And I, I think until we look back at ourselves, uh, uh, understand what accountability should look like, um, I think it's difficult for us to move forward with the full support that we need uh, from all of our, our, our populations. Um, so that's what we're trying to do at Halifax. China has been on the agenda for some time, as has Russia. And I, if I could just say a, a couple of things um, about what's already been said in terms of this week's news. I think, um, and I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but um, of course this week's news uh, from Beijing um, and having Xi elevated to uh, the level of Mao or Deng, um, we, have, we actually have a, an off-the-record session at Halifax this year uh, called the state is she, and essentially, um, as we've been talking about the rise of China for uh, decades now, um, this very well could be the beginning of the end of the rise of China. Because as much as Xi Jinping and the people around him have decided that he is the only person who can lead China uh, forward. Of course, that's not true. Of course, he's a megalomaniac. Um, of course, um, when countries uh, do insist on the leadership and the wisdom and the sole um, power of a single individual, um, you know, history tells us things don't end so well. So <clears throat> I think that we have to be um, careful in terms of understanding that we, in fact, are entering into a brand new uh, era for the People's Republic of China. Um, where she has, over the course of, of uh, nine years, has uh, imprisoned any political rival, 
uh, on the auspices of, of uh, corruption, um, and that she now uh, has made promises uh, in terms of increasing the, the, um, the uh, continued prosperity of the Chinese people. And I think that's going to be, as, as was mentioned by Patrick, uh, growth in China is going to be limited, and it's going to be very difficult uh, for Xi uh, to continue uh, creating prosperity the way the way the country has developed for the past uh, couple of decades, um, and so I I I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, look at China as um, as stable uh, as it has been, and I think that um, we are actually going to be entering into a period where we are uh, going to be. Um, looking at actually a more unpredictable, uh, unpredictable China. Uh, and, and I think that we're seeing that already um, in terms of its reactions to visits uh, to Taiwan. Um, I should say, and I don't mean to be too provocative about it, but Halifax International Security Forum, although the name of the organization HFX reflects a Canadian city, we're an American organization based in Washington, DC. And our first major event outside of Canada is going to be in Taipei in the spring. Um, and uh, as provocative as having a few United States members of Congress uh, fly in, we're going to be having 300 international visitors um, from the United States, Europe, East Asia, uh, from democracies congregating on Taipei early on. And we're gonna, uh, soon after the Beijing Olympics, and we're gonna see what the reaction from Beijing is at that point. Um, with regard by the way, to, uh, kudos, yeah. kudos to you for doing that, by the way, uh, Peter, uh, because Taiwan is uh, a democracy. It's a democracy in the region, uh, a successful one. Um, and uh, I think that the international community um, owes it uh, to a country that China has used might to try to make right uh, and to, um, you know, to isolate Taiwan. Uh, ultimately. Um, so, I mean, kudos to you guys for doing that. Well, I appreciate it. Ta Taiwan's demo democratic progress is indisputable. And the, the one thing that the PRC does not want is for international organizations, American organizations, to shine a light on that progress. And that people, uh, people in Taiwan uh, have proved that Lee Kuan Yew's idea that, that, uh, that democracy doesn't work uh, in Asia, that, that the Asians subscribe to Asian values is wrong. There's such a thing as a, as a Chinese democracy and it exists in Taiwan. Um, so we are delighted to be working with, uh, with uh, President Tsai's government on, on doing that. Um, with regard to Russia, um, you know, I, I don't want to minimize the, um, the Russian threat because it's real, as Evelyn says, and, 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 um, everybody has to know that, and it's been real for some time. I do think um, that President Putin likes to play the game, um, look at me, look at me, look at me. And, um, and so uh, we have to take it seriously, as the Secretary of State is doing. He's warning our European allies to take it seriously. At the same time, um, you know, the last time this happened earlier this year, um, President uh, Biden awarded President Putin with a presidential visit and a meeting. Um, and I think that there is something to be said for, uh, for figuring out what it is that Russia is actually after at this moment. Um, and insofar as, as cooperation has increased between the Chinese and the Russians on a whole host of issues, including 
military exercises. Um, I just want to remind that they don't like each other very much. Um, and so they're, you know, the, the Russians are deeply worried about their Eastern border. The Chinese are, are, are not predictable um, and not going to be reliable partners to the Russians. Um, and so there, there are opportunities, not for partnership with the Russians, but there are opportunities. I mean, with Putin's Russia, it is impossible. I don't want anybody to misunderstand what I'm saying. Um, right. But, but there are, there are um, provided that we demonstrate NATO's uh, unity, um, there are ways to get uh, the Russians to quiet down and behave themselves a little bit better. Um, and I want to uh, remind our audience that even though, uh, you know, there's there's no substitute for actually being there in Halifax, uh, you guys do a terrific job of streaming uh, the public sessions. Uh, and so uh, a lot of tremendous uh, conversations, discussions and questions that happen there. Uh, and so I think it's worthwhile viewing and it happens over a weekend. So you can actually pour yourself uh, a drink or two and, and enjoy some of these uh, conversations. Um, uh, Dove, you've been very patient. I want to bring you into, into, the, into the discussion, right? I mean, uh, Peter um, highlighted some of the challenges uh, and we also heard from Patrick and Evelyn. From, from your standpoint, how do we need to be approaching this period and, and bring in uh, the, the Johnny McEntee memo um, about uh, Mark Esper into this uh, discussion. I, I think it was Jonathan Carl who uh, first reported this, if I'm not incorrect, uh, getting a message, for, uh, an, a memo from uh, the White House Personnel Office uh, making the case on why uh, de then Defense Secretary uh, Dr. Mark Esper should be uh, fired. And, um, you know, that was around the time when we were spending a lot of time on this program discussing what Mark Esper's fate was going to be. You know, it waited until after the election when uh, the president asked for uh, uh, Secretary Esper's resignation. But how does this play in and remind us of, of sort of the authoritarian bent that we're seeing and, and all of these themes that play, are, are playing out simultaneously around the world from your perspective? Well, first of all, uh, on China, um, I tend to agree with uh, Peter um, uh, the Chinese, by the way, have still not dug themselves totally out of the Evergrande mess. Uh, that, as you know, is this real, big real estate, huge real estate uh, company that uh, was supposed to be building lots of middle class housing uh, and has not and uh, has not been able to, to pay its debts. And uh, they'll get they'll be bailed out by the Chinese government. But somebody's going to pay the bill. And it looks like it'll be the um, the wealthier investors. That already causes a problem for China. By the way, Evergrande's not the only one. There's a, the whole real estate sector there is a problem. But there's another problem, which is the banks in China, which nobody nobody really ever believed their numbers anyway. But the banks were listing Evergrande's assets as their assets, right? right. Well, uh, what happens when people take a haircut? that really affects the assets. So the banks may be in trouble. You know, they keep saying this isn't going to be the, the, the Lehman Brothers bubbles bursting, but it could well be. Uh, and that's a lot of pressure on, on Xi. And of course, one way that historically dictators have diverted their populations is by being aggressive against others, uh, which is why uh, I think we're seeing so much being done in terms of penetrating uh, Taiwanese uh, uh, air defense zone. So I, I think we need to watch the economy there. Um, the growth, if, if, if they're saying 
growth will be around 2%, then it's going to be lower than that. They, they've always exaggerated growth as well. I think uh, Patrick can confirm that. Um, all of which says that, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be very troublesome. Uh, I've got a piece out today about the Navy. I uh, wrote about it in The Hill, which basically says, you know, the Navy really is the pointy edge of the spear uh, out in that part of the world, and it's just not getting enough money. Uh, and uh, there are lots of ways to deal with that problem, but that problem has to be dealt with. Um, so, you know, you've got an issue there. The McEntee issue, if I can flip to that, uh, is, is simply this. It, one of the lines that really amused me in that memo was when uh, they were criticizing Esper for being Yesper. Now, he actually got that criticism because everybody thought he was genuflecting in front of Trump. And it turns out that they used that the Trump, uh, you know, uh, troglodytes used that phrase to attack him. Um, I think Mark, uh, over the course of his tenure, uh, demonstrated that uh, he had a lot more backbone than people gave him credit for. Uh, and um, it looks like that uh, in many respects, the, the reason that Mark Milley called the, his counterpart in China was because Mark Esper pretty much gave him the green light to do so because Esper didn't trust the White House any more than the White House trusted Esper. So I would think that uh, in a very ironic way, that memo makes Mark Esper look very good. Uh, and I should point out, right, Patrick, uh, uh, last week or week before when we talked about the China report, uh, made clear that that was actually one of the more uh, interesting um, the pieces uh, of it. Let me just add oh, one more ahead. thing. Yeah, yeah go ahead, um, because Evelyn uh, did not mention this. And, uh, you know, in late last month, it turned out that the Chinese uh, had uh, built two major targets uh, that lo look an awful lot like aircraft carriers out in Xinjiang, in the province uh, out west in western China. Um, in one case, uh, the targets were uh, a Nimitz-sized uh, mock-up, Nimitz carrier-sized mock-up, and two Aegis uh, destroyer mock-ups. And the second case was a smaller carrier mock-up. Um, and, you, you know, when you combine that with the, uh, uh, the holes in the ground that clearly are meant for strategic nuclear missiles and the penetrations of Taiwanese air defense uh, space, um, you're just seeing this this constant drumbeat of, of, of aggressive moves that, as I say, could well be a, uh, a could be much more serious than we're even taking it. Uh, and B could certainly be a, a diversion from uh, Xi's other problems, even if he's just been given this extended term. Um, Patrick, um, how is Beijing likely to respond to an organization like Halifax having a major security conference? Um, in Taiwan, right? I mean, the Taiwanese, this, this is, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a terrific uh, and important thing to do. Uh, and yet people have been more willing to appease Beijing than, than not. Does this, what does this mark in terms of uh, a change, do you think? Well, it's a brilliant move by Halifax um, because it is a non-governmental space and there's nothing that China can do to really touch that directly. They'll undoubtedly put pressure on sponsors or individuals to try to stay away or to, to downplay it, the significance of the discussion. But I think Halifax and Taiwan will both come in for a good, a good bit of uh, Chinese government criticism because the propaganda machine is set up 
to tackle anyone that lends credence to Taiwan and support for Taiwan, and they'll assail it as Taiwan independence movement and, and attacking uh, sort of the international structure and creating uh, tensions um, because they don't like it. But the reality is that um, Taiwan is the democracy, and um, this is something that um, Jake Sullivan made clear, and, and I think uh, actually Secretary Blinken made clear in, in their various remarks this past week, that the United States is committed to helping Taiwan with its own defense. And, and the Chinese said, you can't say that. That's against the one China policy. And, and Secretary Blinken said, well, no, we, we see it as strengthening deterrence, as strengthening the peace so that we can then work on trying to forge uh, peace in, in the future. Um, so this is an ongoing debate about uh, a tug of war over over Taiwan. And Dove's right to, to point to the real military issues. And you, Vago, just alluded again to the fact that in the China DOD report to Congress, they actually talked about the so-called October surprise, um, not in those words, but in terms of the, the calls that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, and Chad Sabraja, the then Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for China policy, made with their Chinese counterparts on two occasions last October because the Chinese were genuinely worried, apparently, that the United States might instigate a South China Sea conflict. And therefore, it really is important to have strategic communication channels open and working with China. Uh, and that was, uh, I think, a case where they did work. Um, and we shouldn't trivialize China's threats to Taiwan. But at the same time, a lot of this saber rattling is very much about controlling the rhythm of how we talk about the, the China relationship and how we talk about Taiwan. Evelyn, I know you're on a very, very short hook. What are some of the specific things that have to happen to keep the Russians from going? Is there anything that we're going to be able to do that keeps Russia from going into Ukraine, ultimately, if they want to go into Ukraine? Well, I think, obviously, we need to keep the diplomatic pressure on the Russians. And you know, part of that we see unfolding with the European Union and, and uh, President of the Commission, von der Leyen, uh, von der Leyen meeting with um, President Biden and issuing a strong statement um, on Belarus, but also again, uh, the Secretary of State on Ukraine. Diplomacy is important, but more importantly, um, it, it, it's, I think what, what Congressman Mike Turner was saying last night or the night before on Fox News when he was talking with Tucker Carlson, we need to provide military support to the Ukrainian government so that the Russians know that this is not going to be a freebie, um, that they will lose, lose lives in the process. And that frankly has been an issue um, you know, in the past that has, that has caused the Russians to pause and not to um, continue their advances into Ukraine. Um, obviously sanctions are another option and the Nord Stream 2 pipeline hasn't um, started uh, flowing gas to Europe yet. So there's still an opportunity there to block that project. The, the Russians and the Belarusians cannot get away with uh, economic, political, and military pressure on the West. We are stronger. We can stand up to them if we want to. Uh, Evelyn, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Look forward to having you back on again uh, soon. Thank you. Sorry, I have to run. Not at all. Uh, Peter, um, you know, authoritarianism is still looming large, right? I mean, Poland and Hungary continue their battle uh, with the European Union over justices, right? Suborning the rule of law to uh, the state. Um, you know, I mean, ultimately, are we moving the needle as quickly as we need to be moving it? Because if you look at it, disinformation in the United States has convinced the large 
number of members of one of America's most important political parties to believe that the 2020 election was stolen against all contrary to all evidence that that was the case. Right. I mean, so, you know, disinformation is a powerful weapon that is wielded. And, it, you know, however frustrated people are with Meta or Facebook, it doesn't appear necessarily to be it's unlikely to change that the, the dynamic that we've created for ourselves. Right. I mean, what is it? What is it that we're getting wrong with these guys? Because they just seem to be getting more power. You know, this is the question of maybe the last decade and the next decade. Um, and, you know, if there's one word, uh, I guess, to, to use to, to cure what ails democracies, it's accountability. Um, I think that, you know, as I, I said at the top, um, our democracy in the United States um, it's pretty robust uh, and resilient. And I think that um, all Americans actually should be very proud of the fact that, um, that this democracy uh, with democratic tools removed um, a president of the United States, I hate to say this, who had authoritarian tendencies. Um, in many countries, that type of individual cannot be removed um, through peaceful uh, elections. And by the way, as you've just suggested, it was very painful here and continues to be painful in the United States. Um, and so uh, essentially um, established democracies um, in the U UK, United States, others um, have to continually always uh, be honest, be straightforward with the, with the people they represent, and they have to deliver. There has to be economic progress. There has to be a, a safe um, end to the pandemic. Um, and that is the way that democracy is going to continue uh, to thrive and to, and to grow. In newer democracies, um, you know, that were, um, you know, you mentioned Poland and Hungary, um, the, the, the same principles apply. And uh, thankfully, they are, they are attached to institutions, the EU and NATO, um, that really benefit uh, those countries' security. So, so there, there's decisions to be made, um, and they have to be made by um, responsible leaders um, in partnership with the people they represent. And this is something that really applies to all of us. It applies to elected leaders everywhere. It applies to civil servants everywhere. Um, this is, you know, um, public office is a public trust and everybody has to, you know, we've now, it's been made very clear over the last five years or so, what's at stake uh, and why it's so important uh, to have public trust in, in uh, democratic government. Um, uh, Dove, uh, I want uh, go to go to you uh, and get your sense on um, an unusual uh, exchange. Uh, Lucas Tomlinson of Fox uh, asked uh, John Kirby, if I understand it correctly, um, you know, whether China or climate was a bigger challenge. Uh, and, and John's answer was, you know, they're, they're both challenges um, and they're different types of challenges and they're both uh, very, very important. But from a PR standpoint, I mean, right, this is like a, the PR version of what's worse, you know, kicking your dog or kicking your spouse, right, as the as the saying uh, goes, you know, we we've we've not seen a degree of politicization when it comes to 
the kind of questioning that are directed to the Pentagon, right? I mean, those are tend to be White House questions and and things like that. I mean, are we are we seeing sort of a a breakdown uh, a little bit in, in this? And and you know, we we had Frank uh, Dr. Frank Hoffman of NDU on one of America's leading strategists, and his point was, you know, I mean, we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We need to be addressing climate just like we need to be, uh, you know, do, doing better against uh, against China. I mean, what was your sense of of the exchange um and and how it is we need to be looking at these threats right i mean it's not just china at the expense of everything uh, no it, it's not just china but i think one of the key one of the real questions is how much does dod need to do um this year dod is getting 617 million dollars to work on uh, climate issues and these are the kinds of things like uh, making sure that uh, infrastructure isn't hit by hurricanes again or by flooding like off at Air Force Base was. Um, so that, that's one category of, of climate expenditure. But what the Defense Department has done is uh, it's issued a couple of climate reports now. And it's kind of said, well, you know, climate can, issues can cause wars. And therefore, we need to get involved because of that. Uh, but remember, climate isn't the country, and it affects everybody. And then the question is, if, if the issue is famine, shouldn't AID be getting some money to deal with that? Uh, if the, or the issue is water. I mean, these are things that AID has done for a long time, as has to some extent the Department of Agriculture. But the real question is, how much money should DOD in a, in a budget environment that's getting tighter uh, and that's not even accounting for the inflation that's really going to, if the four and a half percent keeps up uh, for somewhat longer, it's really going to hit the defense budget quite seriously. Uh, in, in light of that, is there someone else who can take up the slack that DOD right now is taking up? Uh, it's a kind of version of DOD is once again the default agency for just about everything. And so it's not... China or climate, it's really how much of climate. Uh, you can't deny that the Defense Department has to spend money on climate. The, there's no question about it. Uh, Kath Hicks, the Deputy Defense Secretary, has just come out with a statement that they're going to move to electric cars. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Why not? As long as it doesn't cost more. Because if it costs more, then something else is being given up. And uh, <clears throat> the Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs recently said that, you know, a lot of money is is lost out of the O&M budget because of climate damage. But the flip side of that is money is lost out of the o operations and maintenance budget when you're spending on climate. And so there has to be a balance here. Tomlinson threw a Kirby a curveball. Uh, John Kirby is a very serious, uh, respected guy um, and he answered as best he could, in, 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 uh, which was, you know, in a, to a curveball question. And every penny it spends on climate change means it's not spending something, money on something else, whether it's acquisition or operations and maintenance. Um, it's, climate is not equivalent to China. I don't think that the department has said that. It's clearly moved up in priorities. Um, the department has given a lot more focus to that. Uh, but then again, it's a major issue. Uh, so the real question isn't, oh, is it China or is it climate change? The real question is DOD has to spend money to deal with climate threats that will affect it directly. 
the real question is, does it spend more money on threats that will affect it indirectly and that other agencies can deal with? Uh, do you think uh, that this is a politicization, a new politicization oh, uh, yeah. of this sort of thing? Absolutely. Or- I mean, it, you know, if it wasn't politicized, the question wouldn't have been put that way. Um, you know, climate, has, like so many other things like like COVID, uh, this has become a political issue. Uh, you know, when I was a kid a million years ago, we got polio shots. Nobody asked, nobody questioned. We just complained when it hurt. Um, that's no longer the case. Uh, wearing masks is a, is a political issue. So climate's a political issue. That's not how it should be dealt with. Uh, Patrick, um, you know, I mean, the, the question about a climate deal always dealing with the Chinese is that they are not trustworthy, right? I mean, as Dove mentioned, none of the economic forecasts are accurate. Um, I mean, is this sort of a pyrrhic, is the administration potentially hitting a reset button with the Chinese? when it may not be warranted and actually more in the interest of the Chinese than it is in what the administration is trying to achieve? I I don't think the administration would use the word reset button. Um, We're not going back to the Obama era treatment of of China. We're now in a more sort of precarious position on US-China relations, but we still need cooperation on climate change. And uh, I think John Kerry, the special envoy, worked uh, very hard since February to get a deal in April to be announced at the 11th hour at the COP26 that brought the Chinese forward, even though Xi Jinping didn't bother going to Glasgow. And I think that is welcome from the world. There's some momentum behind this, but clearly coming out of Glasgow, it's obvious that the the countries, including the two biggest greenhouse gas emitters, China and the United States, are not doing enough yet to get to meet the Paris Accord. Uh, target of 1.5 Celsius warming uh, of average global temperatures, which is a real um, sort of tipping point for the world. So more work is going to have to be done, but this at least keeps the ball uh, going forward rather than uh, taking a step back. Um, I'm uh, Dove. I'm going to ask you a quick update on Iran nuclear negotiations. And Peter, you're going to get the last word on the, on the McCain award. Go ahead, Dove. Well, you know, they're, they're still saying that uh, they're going to move ahead, although the president of uh, Iran, Raisi, has made some more negative statements. I think the, the real Iran story this week is, is the drone attack on the prime minister's home, uh, prime minister of Iraq's home. And, and uh, Iran very quickly denied that they were behind it, but everybody says it was a militia. So in a sense, the Iranians were telling the truth. It wasn't their folks. It was the militias that they support. And this is a major question because uh, it's the most uh, egregious attempt to destabilize the country uh, that Iran has really undertaken. And uh, of course, we still have uh, uh, concerns there. Uh, we have troops there. Uh, we've been fired. Our people have been fired on by these militias. Uh, so to me, this is uh, something that's exceedingly worrisome. And uh, multiple delegation, U.S. delegations to Israel, right? Also that's, co- that's correct. And, uh, and of course, the Israel issue has become uh, somewhat of a partisan issue, too. So uh, the J Street group, uh, which tends to lean left, uh, organized a congressional trip to which included the West Bank and included some quite prominent progressives. And at the same time, you had more mainstream Democrats uh going to uh, Israel, and they all met with Prime Minister Bennett. 
Um, it, it's sort of a, an annual pilgrimage during congressional uh, recesses to, to go out there. And I must say, I think the weather's better there than it is here right now. Uh, well, uh, you know, P- uh, Peter uh, mentioned that the weather may not be sunny, but the Canadian disposition, uh, Peter, oh. is always sunny and, and very, very heartwarming, especially the reception from uh, the great people of Halifax uh, and of uh, Nova Scotia and, and Canada writ large. I'm an American who loves Canada. Um, very quickly, one of the signature events uh, at Halifax, aside from having a really good lobster uh, supper and some very good seafood chowder uh, and great Alberta steaks, uh, if, I, if I may, uh, is the McCain uh, Award. Talk to us a little bit about who the recipient this year will be. Um, Vago, you're asking me to break some news here, um, but I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and do it. Uh, we haven't released this yet, but um, so this year, I mean, we're very proud to do it, um, that it, the McCain Prize is going to the Afghan Female Tactical Unit, uh, which was a group of women special forces in the Afghan army um, that uh, undertook many uh, missions, uh, including night missions, um, taking uh, out Taliban Um Unfortunately, they're all out of Afghanistan now. Uh, as you can imagine, they're all in different places. Uh, many of them in the, are in the United States, um, but we're really looking forward to, to paying tribute uh, to them at Halifax. Uh, it's an uh, extraordinary uh, award. I remember uh, in 2018 when you guys uh, launched it, it was to uh, the people of Lesbos, uh, Greece, uh, for helping uh, refugees fleeing the Middle East. And if I recall, it was to the people of Hong Kong in uh, 2019. Uh, and it was an honor uh, to uh, to talk to that. And the award last year was? President Tsai of Taiwan. Uh, excellent and, and very well done on that. Uh, Dove, before we go, I can't believe uh, we waited this long uh, to discuss this, but potentially very, very important comments uh, by uh, Jack Reed, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Talk to us a little bit about what he said to the uh, Aspen Security Forum uh, well, he, he about industrial consolidation. He basically said he was very worried about it. Um, you've you've had a series of, of uh, big mergers and acquisitions over the past year, uh, Big one, of course, was Raytheon merging with United Tech, UTC, United Technologies, which put Collins and Pratt and Whitney now part of the Raytheon family. You had the Lockheed Sikorsky merger. You had Harris and L3 merger. And what you're finding is less and less competition because you've just got these behemoths. And uh, Senator Reid was echoing actually what Kath Hicks had already talked about as early as February. Uh, People are getting very, very worried about this. Um, As we all know, costs keep going up and the less competition you have, the more costly things are going to get. And when you have an administration that clearly wants to put a lid on the budget, um, this is not the way they want to go. Uh, and I should also point out, right, Lockheed Martin is trying to uh, secure its Aerojet transaction. And uh, there is um, a lot of interest on how the administration is going to rule on that and what that means for the future. And I should also point out to our audience, you're uh, speaking as a former Pentagon comptroller uh, who uh, did uh, at the time talk about uh, the importance of uh, added competition and choice. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you all have a great weekend and a great week and look forward to having you back on again. Peter, look forward to seeing you in Halifax. Thanks again, all. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. 
we've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.